please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. And this morning we're going to pick up where we left off three weeks ago. I've taken little side trips the last two Sundays, and we're back where we left off last in 1 Peter, chapter 3. We pick up at verse 8, and we will look at verses 8 through 12, which serve as the basis for the morning message. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow along. In your Bible, 1 Peter 3.8 says, To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. King Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, death and life are in the power of the tongue. His grandson, 25 times removed, we know him as Jesus Christ, said this. He said, these words I've spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. Isn't it interesting that out of the same mouth can come death and life? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been blessing the Lord, praising the Lord, and then all of a sudden you say something that it's death-producing in the life of someone else? Words wrongly used wither people. Words can actually kill the spirit in a person. By the same token, words of life can re-energize people and minister mightily to people. Last week I received several notes, really, and without going into detail, each time I read the notes, they were notes of encouragement, I sensed an elevation, not of my mood, but just an elevation in my spirit, because the words were thought out, they were rooted in the Word of God, and God used them to encourage me. So that was encouraging in my own experience of words written, not spoken, but written words that had life in them. But there is the possibility that we use our mouths for the wrong reasons, to deal death instead of to deliver life to other people. In the book of 1 Corinthians 16, verses 17 and 18, we're introduced to three characters that are not that well known in the Bible. And Paul says, I was glad or rejoiced when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they made up what was lacking from you. And they refreshed my spirit and yours also, speaking to the Corinthian believers. Their coming brought refreshment to their spirit. This word is used also by Jesus 
in this very familiar passage in Matthew 11, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you shall find rest for your soul. In both of those verses, he uses the same word which Paul alludes to in this Peter, rather. Paul, I'll get it right the third time. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16, when he talks about how he was refreshed, as were the Corinthians, by the coming of these three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Paul uses this again when he writes the short epistle to Philemon. It's not even more than one chapter. In the seventh verse, he makes this statement. He says to this man, Philemon, he says, Philemon, you have encouraged, you have refreshed the hearts of the saints God has through you done that. Now, this is encouraging to me. It's exhorting to me. It calls me, admonishes me to want to be like Jesus, certainly, but to be like Philemon and Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, to be a person whose words and life refresh people. They bring life into other people's lives. And by the way, in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 16, when he talks about being refreshed by those three men, and then how Philemon had refreshed all the saints, and those saints probably met in his house that were in the city of Colossae. He had a church in his home. We're told that in the opening remarks of Paul to Philemon. And in the context of that home, they heard the gospel. They were taught the word of God. But undoubtedly, they were refreshed by what we would call hospitality. Because when they would come into the home, not only did they receive the Word of God in verbal form, but it was personified in this man and those who made up his household. So we need to understand, we have the capacity to dispense that kind of refreshment as well. So how are we to do this? How are we to be people who speak life not death, to be refreshers rather than depleters of people. Well, this passage of Scripture answers the question. Isn't it good that whenever we have a question about anything, if we go to the Bible, the answer is there? Isn't that wonderful? And this is why we take the Word of God and look at all the words in the Bible, because they're God's words. And we seek to properly Put these words in ways that we can understand them when we teach God's Word. So the first answer, I'm going to answer the question negatively. We won't spend a whole lot of time there. Most of our time we'll spend on the positive answer to how we can be refreshers in people's lives. Here's the first answer. It is not accomplished by our blasting people. It is accomplished by our blessing people. That's the message of these verses. Let's begin with the negative statement. We do not become refreshers of other people when we blast them. We blast other people by returning evil for evil and insult for insult. In verse 9, Peter says, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 makes this statement. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. When we return insult with insult, we are in effect cursing people. Some of you have actually done that to other people probably. 
I know in my own heart I've done it, and maybe with my own mouth I've done it before. But we need to be careful that we don't blast people. The word which is translated returning in front of evil for evil and insult for insult is a word which is very instructive. It's the word which means giving back what is due another person. When I am offended, perhaps you have had this experience too, when I'm offended, many times my initial reaction is, I want to lash back. And I find this particularly tempting when I'm driving around El Paso. (laughs) And, you know, I'm not with church people. I'm not with people in my immediate area sometimes. And I just want to stop my car and get out and jack somebody's jaw. (laughs) Don't you sometimes? These people are so rude the way they drive. But I begin to think, remember, you're 66 years old. (laughs) And your mind thinks your body can do things it can't do anymore. So I restrain myself. I can't give the Holy Spirit credit for that. It's just my cowardice probably more than anything. But we need to understand the whole idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth is long gone. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You've heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, and then he explains, we're not to retaliate when we are done wrong. Or someone says something wrong to us that insults us. Instead, the scripture says, let us turn away from evil. That's what the Bible says in this passage of scripture in verse 11. Let him turn away from evil. And the word turn away means swerve in order to miss. I had a picture of this come to my mind as I was teaching last night. One of these Weeks in the past, not too many weeks ago, we've had a hard rain, a really hard rain. And I love it when it rains, and I'm sure you do too here in El Paso. We love it when it rains. But one of the aftermaths of that is, I was probably 9 o'clock at night going home. I was in a hurry, and I turned off of West Wind. I worked my way down to Fountain, and I was just barreling down Fountain. And all of a sudden, in the darkness, there are no streetlights there, all of a sudden, I saw an object in the middle of the road. And I quickly swerved in order to miss it. It was a garbage can, which somehow in all that wind and rain had gotten out in the middle of the road. I swerved to miss it. I didn't miss it, but I tried to swerve and miss it. I hit it. And I was grateful that the trash cans are plastic and not metal, because it would have ruined my car if I had not hit a plastic deal. What we're supposed to do is we're to swerve around things which are evil. Do you see evil coming sometimes? And do you have time to swerve around it? Most of the time we do. Sometimes we're caught unawares. And the Bible gives credence to that. The Bible talks about if anyone is caught in a trespass and the idea being if anyone is trapped, really. And sometimes we're trapped. We're still responsible for our sinful behavior, but it just kind of hits us out of the blue. But many times we have time to contemplate decisions which are, in fact, evil. And we need to turn away or swerve in order to miss those things rather than returning evil for evil. 
someone perpetrates evil against me or insults me, and then what am I to do? I'm to think about it, and I already have this plan in my mind that I'm going to swerve around and miss it. I'm not to come back and have a head-on collision with evil because I lose when I do that. And it's out of keeping with God's will for me to do that. Instead, we are to refrain our tongues from evil. Look at the last part of verse 10. Refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. The word which is translated evil here is a word in the whole idea of restraining one's tongue from evil is the idea of not calculating something that is evil towards someone. In other words, Turn away. When you sit around sometimes and you begin to think about what someone has done to you that's evil, that is not something you should meditate upon. It can only lead to more evil. Instead of doing that, we're to what? We're to move in the direction of doing that which is good. What Peter is writing here, he's actually quoting Psalm 34. He's talking about we're to turn away and refrain from speech which is calculated to hurt other people or to mislead them. Evil and things which are guile, is the word is used. It means false. We are to give up such words. Allow me an illustration. Many of you are familiar with the name St. Francis of Assisi. He was a man who discipled many in the way of the Lord. The Franciscan order in the Roman Catholic Church traces its roots to him. And there was one of his disciples who came to him one day, and he was distraught because he had said something that had crushed the reputation of another member of their order. And he said, what can I do, sir? What can I do, Sir Francis? And this is what Francis told him to do. Go into my house. Go to my bed. There's a pillow on it. Bring it to me. And as you come, stop by the table where I eat, and you'll find a knife there. Bring it with you. The man did as he was told. He got back out on the porch of the dwelling of St. Francis. And then Francis said, Take the knife, I'll hold the pillow, you slice it, then you take the pillow, and then you just begin to wave the pillow like this. It was a rather windy day. And he did exactly what he was told. And the feathers were flying over. It was a feather, I'll get it right, feather pillow. Trying to make a contraction out of feather pillow. But anyway, there they went. And then he said to this young man, he said, Now go and pick up every one of those feathers. He said, well, I can't. It's impossible. He said, every word you say that is careless, like that word, is a word you cannot retrieve. You know words have life? Did you know that? In the Hebrews' way of thinking, a word was something that was seen as having a life of its own. And remember, out of the mouth, come what is in the heart. And out of our mouths come things which can deal death, but also can deliver life. So we have to understand this. So we're not to blast people. Well, let's get to the positive part. Having dealt with the negative part to begin with, we're to bless people. 
And the word which is used in this passage, look at verse 9 again. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. The word which is translated blessing is a word which means speaking well, especially of someone who has spoken poorly of you. Now, that's not the thing I'm inclined to do either. When someone says something negative about me, I want to say something negative back. There is a war of words which follows that kind of interaction. We have to be careful, do we not, about the things which we say and commit ourselves to be blessings to other people. We bless others with our kind deeds. Look at chapter 3, verse 11, the second part. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, the idea of seeking is pretty clear, but I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about the word which is translated pursue. This is an interesting word. Depending on where it occurs in the New Testament, sometimes it means what it's translated here to mean pursue. But also, it's a word which is used to describe persecute. Let me use an illustration of this from my boyhood. Every Thanksgiving, my grandfather on my mother's side, my father and I, and some other relatives and friends would go rabbit hunting in the morning. I remember one particularly bitterly cold Thanksgiving day in West Tennessee. My father, grandfather, and I, and I can't remember who else was with us, Mr. Reed, because he's the one who owned the pack of beagle hounds who hunted the rabbits. And what you may not know about beagle hounds is that beagle hounds, both instinctively and by training, know how to find rabbits, and they run the rabbits back to the hunters. They're very intelligent, and they're running the rabbits back to the hunters. So the hunters, you just stand there. In this case, we were warming ourselves by a big bonfire, and you could hear the dogs out in the distance before long. Here they're coming. They're coming. They're coming. They're pursuing the rabbit. Do you know the word translated pursue, as I mentioned, is used to mean persecute? Those beagle hounds were persecuting the rabbits. Now, I want to be sure you understand something. I didn't shoot a single rabbit. <laughs> but the point is that do we pursue peace with the kind of intensity that is pictured in this word in the original language? Do we pursue peace like that? Or are we casual in our pursuit of reconciliation? The Bible says God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Who is the ultimate peacemaker? It is God the Father. He is the ultimate peacemaker. God sent His Son into the world to reconcile the world to Himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself when He died on the cross. We are to take the gospel to people and hope that they will receive the good news as we have received it and will be reconciled to God. But within the context of the family of God, we have this responsibility as well to exercise this ministry of reconciliation. We are to seek peace and pursue it, persecute it. We're to go after it with that kind of mindset. Now, how can this whole idea of blessing others with kind deeds 
work out in practical life. You might say, okay, Mike, you're talking preacher stuff this morning. You're talking utopian things. Well, look, this is better than utopia. This is the Lord. This is His kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And the way this happens, as we read from Philippians chapter 2 earlier, I hope you paid attention to that great passage. But in that passage, in the fifth verse, it says, Let this mind also be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So guess whose mind we can have? Let me be more specific. That is the improper way to say that. Guess whose mind we have? The Bible says we have the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. I believe that. We have Jesus Christ living in us. Therefore, we have the capacity to think His thoughts after Him. He's given us His Word. His Spirit interprets His Word to us. His Spirit brings things to our minds. As we meditate on His Word day and night, then we're prepared to deal with these things which might cause us to do evil instead of do good. And so we hide His Word in our heart. So all these five qualities we're going to look at are qualities which Jesus embodies. And it's a snapshot of Jesus. It's not an entire picture of Him, but it is a good place for us to begin when it comes to blessing other people. Jesus was the ultimate blesser of people among the human race, He being God Himself, of course. But let's begin with the first idea. It's found in verse 8. To sum up, let all be harmonious. In other words, all of us who know Jesus, who make up the body, we're to live in harmony. Literally, it means be of the same mind. Paul speaks this way to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. He says, be of the same mind with one another. Paul speaks of it even in Philippians 2 that we looked at. In verse 2 he says, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind. In Ephesians, Paul says, make every opportunity, every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the idea of harmony here is the idea of unity. Unity of mind. Having the same mindset. This does not mean uniformity. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. Look at the illustration which Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to describe the church. What does he compare the church to in 1 Corinthians 12? A body, doesn't it? And think about your own physical body. It has various aspects to it, and not everything is the same. The body is not an eye, Paul talks about. Or the body is not a hand. I mean, it's a compilation of those external and internal parts of who we are. And they all work together. They are in unity, but they don't look alike. So it is in the body of Christ. We're not to be in lockstep with each other, dress alike, and say the things everybody else says, unless it's the Word of God or things pertaining to the Word of God. We're to be ourselves in Christ, in the body of Christ. And we're to go for unity in the process. My character, and yours too, our characters are determined and revealed by the things to which we give our minds. Isn't that true? It's what Solomon writes in Proverbs where he says, 
As a man thinks, so is he. There's great truth in that. The battle is won mainly in my mind. What do I fix my mind upon? That's what determines who I am, really. As a man thinks, so is he. And because we have the mind of Christ, we can think like Christ. Was Jesus one who embodied this mindset? Yes. He embodied it, for instance, in John 10, 31. He says, I and the Father are one. Father and Son are one. They have a mindset of unity. And they model for us what it is to be in the body of Christ. We are to have a mindset of unity. Jesus says in John 17, 20, as he's praying to the Father, Father, I don't simply ask in behalf of these alone. He's talking about the apostles. I don't ask these things just for the apostles, but I also ask for those who believe in me through their word. That would be us. Do you know we believe in Jesus through the words of the apostle, which were actually the words of Jesus that the Holy Spirit brought to their minds and they wrote it out for us in the gospel? Do you understand that? And Jesus was praying for us back then that they also may be like us, that they all may be one is what Jesus says in John seventeen twenty one, And He uses this illustration. Just as you, Father, are in Me and I am in you. Oneness. Unity. Unity in our homes. Unity in our church. Unity in our community with those who know Jesus. This is what God has called us to. Isn't it wonderful? God is really turned off, and that's too mild a term, to people who sow seeds of discontentment and discord. There are seven things which are recorded by Solomon in the sixth chapter of Proverbs that he hates. And the seventh is a brother who stirs up dissension within the fellowship. I borrow an illustration to conclude this consideration from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. He says, 100 pianos tuned to the same tuning fork are tuned to one another. Do you know how we get over ourselves and we get unity in our homes, in our church, in our community? The way we get over it is we tune in to the Lord. And consequently, we'll do what He does. We'll think what He thinks. We'll say what He says. We'll be like Christ individually. And the result is, we're going to have harmony. It's critically important, Jesus said in John 17, so that the world may know that you did send me. Do you know what destroys the witness of the church? When there's dissension in the church. That destroys it. And it causes unbelievers not to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, here's the next term that's used in verse 8 to describe how we can bless others with kind deeds by being sympathetic. And the word translated sympathetic is a word which comes from two words, one meaning suffering and together with. So to be willing to suffer together with others, to care for other people is the idea. We know Jesus is described as our high priest who has the capacity to sympathize with us. He understands us. He became one of us. He was tempted just like we are. And He was suffering during the temptation. Hebrews 2.18 says, 
He suffered through the temptation. He understands what life is like for us in this fallen world. And consequently, we can have that same attitude toward one another. In Philippians 2, I keep referring back to Philippians 2 and Romans 12. In Philippians 2, verse 4, we read, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you know how I know I'm growing spiritually? When I begin to see that I have at least as much interest in you as I do in me. And hopefully my interest in you will outgrow my interest in me. That's the mark of a truly maturing follower of Jesus Christ. Get your mind off yourself. Jesus was not self-absorbed at all. He came to give His life a ransom for many. He came to serve and not to be served. This is the one who lives in us, not just our example. He's our example, but He's more than our example. He's the one who indwells us. And He's the one that God will use in our lives to make us a sympathetic person. In Romans 12, 15, the Bible says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Does your heart go out to a brother or sister in Christ who is hurting and weeping maybe? Are you drawn to that person? It's Christ drawing you to that person to minister to him or to her. Let's go on now and look at the third trait of the individual who blesses others with kind deeds, brotherly. And this word brotherly means affectionate friendship is really what it means. Samuel Coleridge, the British literary great, in a poem wrote this. He said, a friend is a sheltering tree. That paints a beautiful picture, especially for us who live in this climate. A friend is a sheltering tree. I can get underneath a tree and find shelter from such a friend. We know who that friend is. Who is he? Jesus is that friend, isn't he? He is such a friend. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, that he lays down his life for his friend. Where did he lay down his life? On a tree. There's shelter under the tree of Christ, the cross of Christ. It's the only place where we find final shelter and protection. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and he is safe. If we run to Christ, he is the ultimate one who will shelter us. But the good news is we who know Jesus can be that kind of friend to others. The Bible says in Proverbs 17:17, 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. Are you that kind of friend? When the chips are down in another person's life and everybody has left for fear that they'll be guilty by association with such a person. Are you a friend? Do you love that person? A friend loves how often? At all times. And a brother is born for adversity. This idea of brotherly affection Our brotherly friendship is in this word. We are people who are born for adversity. When a brother is in trouble or a sister is in trouble, we're there to console them, to exhort them if they need exhorting. And this idea of brotherly 
ness in us is a sign of spiritual life. The Bible says in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed over from death and lot to life because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we don't love them, we abide in death. This is the acid test as to whether we really are followers of Jesus. Do we love one another? And also, it's a sign of our being disciples of Christ. Jesus says, by this, all men will know, will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the identifying mark of a man or a woman as being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was Christ an affectionate friend? Well, sure he was. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. We're to be that kind of lover. Jesus loved us. He gives us not only the example, but the power. The Bible says, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We have the love resident in us because Christ lives in us. And He wants to live His life through us. And loving other people with His love. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this. And He laid down His life for His friend. I've quoted this once but it's worth quoting again. And in that same chapter, he says, No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Think about that. Jesus has called you his friend if you are a child of God through him. Please understand that this affectionate friendship has a component that's sometimes avoided. It's the component of confronting someone who's a brother or sister in Christ when they're in sin. But Jesus Himself says, using the verbal form of the word that's translated brotherly here, He says, those whom I love, He uses the verbal form of that word, it's phileo is the word, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. We need each other for accountability. And you don't really have a friend or a brother if you don't have someone who's willing to risk the relationship by confronting you if he or she thinks you're in sin. We really don't. The Bible says, many are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. After I gave this message at 9 o'clock, I had a man come up to me and said, his wife said, I needed, said he needed to quit blasting her right in the middle of the sermon. And I said, faithful are the wounds of a wife. You know, isn't it true, men? Our wives know us all too well, don't they? And we don't like it. Sometimes they're wrong. Not very often, but sometimes they're wrong. And when they're wrong in their assessment, what do we do? Do we shoot back at them? What do we do? When you're insulted, what do you do? You bless, right? You bless. Well, who said that? What was that? Swerve. Way to go, Emiliano. Got one person listening. You swerve to get around that, don't you? Thank you, brother. <laughs> Emiliano was baptized a week ago Tuesday night. He's on the ball. He's growing in the Lord. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, brother, for the feedback. Okay, let's go to the next word, kind-hearted. And that, that's a great word to capture, kind-hearted. Was Jesus kind-hearted? He was full of compassion. Seeing the multitudes, the Bible says, he had compassion because they were like 
sheep without a shepherd. They were distressed and downcast. Sheep without a shepherd. That's Jesus. The verbal form of this word kind-hearted is only used of Jesus, by the way, in the New Testament. The verbs used of people like us, but Jesus is the only one about whom it was said he had that kind of compassion. That doesn't mean we can't have it. Why? Why? Because who lives in us? Jesus lives in us. He who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. Jesus lives in us by His Spirit. And He can reproduce this quality through us. In a book entitled Character Above All, it's a series of ten essays which were written in really admiration, appreciation for presidents FDR through George H.W. Bush. The woman who wrote the essay on the life of Richard Nixon, not Richard Nixon, uh, Ronald Reagan, her name is Peggy Noonan. Sometimes I see things she's publishing now. She's still writing. She was his speech writer. And she, in doing the research to write the essay about this man, about his character, what she discovered was every story she heard about him had a story of kindness attached to it. Every one. He was a very kind-hearted man. And in the process of reporting this, she told a story about an 83-year-old woman who lived in the Bay Area of California. Her name was Frances Green. And Miss Green, for many years, probably decades, every year, when a plea was made by the Republican National Committee for her to send a donation, she would send a dollar. She was on limited income, didn't have much money, and she'd given a dollar every year. This particular year, 1983, she received an invitation from the RNC to come to have an audience with President Reagan. But she didn't read the small print. You would RSVP if you were giving a certain level of donation to the RNC. She didn't read that. But that didn't stop her. She was so excited, she scraped all the money she had together. She couldn't buy an airplane ticket. All she could afford was a transcontinental railroad ticket, and not with sleeper privileges, just in second class, just sitting up. Can you imagine at your age, not many of you are 83, but at your age, going all the way across America for four days and night with no shower or anything like that? Unbelievable. She arrived and on time went to the White House with invitation in hand, got in the long line. When she got to the line, she handed the invitation to the guard who was looking at the manifest when people would come and give an invitation. He looked down to the G's. There was no green, no Francis Green. He said, I'm sorry, Miss Green. Your name is not here. There was an executive with the Ford Motor Company who had the proper invitation right behind her. And he heard what happened. He pulled her aside and said, is it? True that you got an invitation and didn't send in a certain amount of money? She said, yes, it's true. He sensed the great forlornness of the lady. He found out how she had gotten there all the way across America. And he said, give me your phone number, please, and I will call you back. I'm going to talk to someone about this in the White House. He got in, of course. And as he went in, he found a person whom he already knew who was close to the president, got the message to the president, And he called this woman back, not the president, but this Ford executive, called the lady back when he got home from being at the White House. And he said, can you meet me in the morning? And he gave the time. She said, yes, I can. 
She met him. They went in. They got the red carpet treatment, got to see the backside of the White House, not just the part that you and I would probably get to see if we took the tour. They saw it all. And they ended up in front of the Oval Office. And about the time they ended up there, the door opened and out came the members of the National Security Council. All these big wigs, many stars on the coats of the men who were in there. They were generals in the Army. And as they came out, they filed out. And as they cleared the doorway, and the door was still open, President Reagan was sitting behind his desk, and he saw Miss Green and the Ford executive outside. And he said, Francis, I've been waiting for you. These computers keep fouling things up, Francis, I'm sorry. And you come in here and sit down and let's have a chat. And she came in and sat down, and they didn't talk about politics. They talked about her life, her family, and their native California. And then after a time of leisurely discussing those things, President Reagan said, I'm sorry, I've got another appointment to keep. Francis, I hope you have a great day. She got up and walked out. She had nothing to give to that man who's the most powerful person in the world. He gave her something beautiful. He was kind-hearted. And Jesus is so much bigger than President Reagan. I love President Reagan. But Jesus puts him in the shade, doesn't he? And where does Jesus live, men and women? Where does he live? He lives in us. And he wants to be that kind-hearted to other people through us. And he will if we will yield ourselves to him. The last item here is humble in spirit. And being humble is not easy to identify, really. In fact, if you think you're humble, you're not. It's just a fact. Most people I would identify as humble from a description found in Scripture are people who think they're proud, really. They're humbled by the thought of their pride. And a person who's truly humble is not that self-conscious at all. Do you know... You can't be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, or kind-hearted unless you're humble, right? Because pride won't let you be harmonious because you think you're always right. You've got to have your way, sympathetic. You're too stuck on yourself. Brotherly, well, you want somebody to do you a favor, not you help other people. Kind-hearted, you want to be tough because it's American to be really tough, right? Humble in spirit. Philippians 2.3 says... Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Is that your heart? Do you see others as better than yourself? Or do you sense that you're superior to other people? Any hint of superiority in my mind in relationship to anybody else is sinful. Not that I'm inferior to them, We're all on the same level, are we not? We are born again by the living and abiding Word of God. God, by His grace, chose to reveal Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Then He gave us His life and He indwells us. We're all dignified by the presence of Jesus in our lives. We are part of a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a particular, peculiar people. We are the possession of God. What an amazing thing. We need to treat each other 
as royalty. Because that's what you are if you're in Christ. You're a child of God. Thank you, Lord. There's so many princes and princesses in this room today. Was Christ humble in spirit? Didn't we read about it in Philippians 2? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing. He became obedient to death by becoming a slave, as it were. He became obedient to death on a cross. He humbled Himself. The very nature of Jesus, He says about Himself, I am humble in heart. This is the heart of Christ. And this is the heart of a man or a woman who is indwelled by Christ, filled by Christ, and is like Christ. We have this kind of approach. As we finish, I finish with a question and let the text answer all of our questions. Why are we to bless? Well, the answer is to be found in verse 9. Look at it. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but by giving a blessing instead. That's the command. That would be enough reason to bless, wouldn't it? But look what it goes on to say. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Follow me. I have been given the responsibility to give a blessing. I'm to bless you. I'm to bless you in the things I say to you and about you. I'm to bless you in the things I do for you. I'm to bless you in the way in which I relate to you. And guess what happens? I am built for an inheritance of a blessing. You know what the blessing is? The blessing is that I get the benefit of being in tandem with Jesus Christ. And Jesus blesses me in the doing of the things through me that He does. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you don't, please consider giving Jesus that kind of control of your life. So that through you, He will be harmonious. Through you, He will be sympathetic. Through you, He will be brotherly. Through you, He will be kind-hearted. And through you, He will be humble in spirit. Therein lies the blessing. We're so self-centered. We miss this very important point. Well, let's read a little further. The blessing that we inherit has three aspects that I see. In verse 10, let him who means to love life and see good days. And then it says what that person is to do. To bless people, not to blast them. The idea of quality of life. That's what this phrase, him who means to love life. It's not about long life. It's about quality of life. So, do you have a quality of life? that's full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You can't buy that. Not all the gold in the world will buy that for you. It's a peace that passes all understanding. It's ours when we bless other people. Be a blessing, not a blaster. Here's the next thing. We get the support of God. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Do you know what that means? It echoes what is written in Second Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose hearts are completely His. God is looking for people like you and me 
who are committed to Jesus Christ and therefore to God the Father and the Spirit of God, he's looking for those people so that he can support them. If God is for us, the Bible says, who can be against us? I want God on my side. I drive down the freeway, I see this sign. God is on your side. Yes, if you know Jesus Christ, he's on your side. If not, you're his enemy. So don't take that sign with a grain of salt. Look at it and look what the Word of God says. He is on our side. Praise the Lord for that if we're in Christ. Now here's the third thing, answered prayer. Look at the second part of verse 12. And his ears attend to their prayer. Do you know what the Bible says? This is the confidence that we have before God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have what we've asked from Him. Do you see how important it is that God hear my prayer? If He doesn't hear it, it's not getting answered. Plainly and simply. So one of the ways I can know my prayer is going to be answered is that I bless other people. And I can't bless them in my own strength. I have to depend upon Christ Himself to empower me to bless other people. Well, we end with a question. Do you want to be a blesser or a blaster? I've made up a word. I don't even think there's a word blaster. (laughs) It works for a preacher, though. And hopefully it will help you to remember. That's the question this week as you go through the week. Think about this and make it the habit of your life. Lord, I want to bless somebody today. I don't want to blast anybody today.